Morning. As I said in first service, I'm going to try my hardest to not touch this cord so you don't get that awful raspy sound from it uh, on our microphones here. My name is John. Uh, I am a member here at, or excuse me, I shouldn't say member, partner, partner here at Hydrant Church. Uh, I am not Pastor Tim, nor am I Pastor Anita. They are still on their sabbatical. Uh, that August 25th, that'll be their first Sunday back with us, so we hope you all will come out for that. But they are currently on sabbatical. Uh, we had dinner with them last week, and it seems like they're having a really good time relaxing. And Tim has been writing, so uh, we're excited to see what they'll bring back with us uh, on August 25th. But we're excited you guys are here today. And I'll be honest, the sermon that I have for you guys is not the one that I was planning. Uh, I had one planned out when Tim talked to me about filling in this Sunday, and God just kind of hit me with this, and I'll be honest, this sermon that I'm giving is something that I have personally struggled with this week, and so I'm probably just kind of really preaching at myself right now, but you all get to hear it as well. So, uh, But what that is, is I'm talking about a verse that has been spoken about by Dustin, who filled in for the first four weeks, Pastor Josh that filled in last week. Uh, they each brought up this passage, and it's about this idea of what it means to truly worship. And I think when we talk about worship, we think automatically, well, we go to church. Yeah, I worship. I go on Sundays sometimes, and, you know, sometimes I'll serve elsewhere, but, you know, I worship at church. But I want us to challenge that idea of worship being just something that you go to. But rather, worship is something that we should exude, something that we should be living out daily. It's a lifestyle. And so what I want, and I guess be the catchy title for this, is to worship without walls. What does that look like when we take our worship out of these four walls and into our communities, into our families, into our workplaces, our schools, everywhere we go? What does it look like to worship? And there's a passage in Scripture, as I said, that we have been talking about. Uh, It hasn't been really the focal point, but each of the past two pastors have mentioned this. And it's found in Micah chapter 6. But before we get to that, uh, let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for this beautiful day. Father, I thank you for bringing all of us here to sing praises, to worship you, and to hear your words. Father, I pray that these words are not mine, that they're yours. Father, that I decrease as you increase. I ask this in your son's most precious name. Amen. So if you'd like to turn in your Bibles or on your phone apps or whatever to Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, Uh, I am actually using the message translation, message version. So if you would, if I'm reading this, you're like, this does not sound like, that's why it's a paraphrase version. So Micah chapter six, how can I stand up before God and show proper respect to him? Should I bring an armload of offerings topped off with yearly calves? Would God be impressed with thousands of rams, buckets and barrels of olive oil? Would he be moved if I sacrificed my firstborn child, my precious baby, to cancel my sin? No, he's already made a plan, made it plain how we should live, what we should do, what God is looking for in men and women. And it's quite simple. Do what is fair and just to your neighbor. Be compassionate and loyal in your love. And don't take yourself too seriously take God seriously. So I'd like to share a story with you guys about this man and his wife. 
they are going out to one of those restaurants that has on the menu salad bar and steak. You know what I'm talking about, where the guy comes out and tells you when to stop cutting that steak. So this couple is out, and they're dining, and this young girl waitress comes out, and she's carrying a five-gallon bucket full of Thousand Island dressing. And so she's walking out there, and we've all seen the movies or the funny stories. Unfortunately, something happens. Her heel catches, and she trips. And where does this five-gallon bucket of Thousand Island dressing go? All over the man. She dumps it completely on top of him. Now, this man happens to be wearing a very nice suit. And from his head to his toes and everywhere in between, he is covered now in Thousand Island dressing. Drenched completely. Now, I want you to imagine this. Put yourself in this man's shoes. How would you respond? Would you sit there in utter shock? Like, what just happened? Would you immediately try to, like, catch it somehow? Like, maybe you saw it in slow motion as it's coming at you, and you try to, or move, or put somebody else in your way? You know, when we eat out, we always have Finley, so I could put her there. I'm an awesome parent. (laughs) This gentleman, on that fateful day, that Sunday afternoon, went a different route than all those. He chose to absolutely lose his mind, went ballistic, and starts calling this poor girl who just made a mistake, a simple mistake, but starts calling her every name in the book. I can't believe how stupid you are. How could you do this? Look at this. This is the first chance I've had to wear this suit, and it cost me $350. Look at this. It's completely ruined. And the girl is just, she's trying, she's scrambling. She's like, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And the man yells, get away from me. You've done enough. And then his wife chimes in. That's right. It's a $350 suit. Blah, 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 blah. Everybody in the whole restaurant is looking. I mean, clearly, you dump a bucket, and a man's yelling, and a woman's yelling. It's going to cause a scene. So the man goes, I want to see your manager. And so the manager comes out, and being typical food service, is there a problem? (laughs) Yes, there's a problem. This idiot here has ruined my suit. It's the first chance I've had to wear, and it cost me $350. Sir, we'll clean the suit for you. I mean, the manager is trying. He's like, we'll clean it. We'll dry clean it. We'll get you cleaned up. You know, your meal's paid for. Please, please, just let's calm down. And the man says, no, it's ruined. I want a completely new suit. You write me a check right now for $350. So the manager and him cleaned up, disappeared. And I'm assuming probably wrote him a check for $350. Justice was served. Now, here's what's interesting about this story is it happened on a Sunday afternoon. Now, I want us to think collectively, why would a person be wearing a suit dressed up Sunday around lunchtime? They had probably just got done hearing a really good sermon about how we're called to love God and love people, right? You see... 
If you ask most people in the food service what their least favorite day to work, it's Sunday afternoons. And it is absolutely tragic because we're called to worship not only here, but everywhere we go. And yet, not just saying people here, but we as the church have this tendency to be hated upon and people dread working that because we can go in there and instead of leaving a tip, we leave a tract. Or we're rude like this. So I want to challenge that idea that our worship is just contained here. We are to worship without walls. And if you have attended here regularly, you have heard Zoe mentioned it in announcements. We are all about three things, connecting, filling, and overflowing. And you probably have heard them ad nauseum because we are all about those three things. Connecting with God and others, being filled with his Holy Spirit, and overflowing on everyone we encounter. So if you're new here, you're going to be hearing about it. And we hope that you are encouraged to do the same. If you are attending here and those words mean nothing to you, you're probably attending the wrong church. Because you're going to keep hearing it. And we're going to keep doing it. But you see, we're called to worship in the restaurants. Even when they screw up your order for the upteenth time. Or when you place a call-in order and your milkshake's melted because you showed up 20 minutes late. We're called to worship at the ball field when the umpire makes a terrible call against your child and you disagree with it. We're still called to worship there. We're called to worship at the golf course. I play golf. I don't do well at golf. And I have broken clubs and realized I looked like an idiot out there. I'm like, what's the point of breaking a club? I'm not Tiger Woods. I like to dress and buy clubs and think I am, but I'm not. So why am I getting angry at a sport that I'm terrible at? But we're called to worship in the classrooms. We're called to worship in the office cubicle. For me this week, we're called to worship people who are coming in and are stupid with their finances, and I get cursed out because of it. But how do we worship without walls? And what does God expect of such a life of worship outside of Sunday morning? And that is what Micah is talking about in these three requirements. See, in Micah 6, 8, he says, He has shown you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. See, Micah shares these three requirements because I think they're easy to memorize. We all like catchy stuff. We all have that song gets stuck in our head, and it may not be a great song, but it's stuck in your head because it's catchy. But he makes these things easy to remember. So if you leave here remembering nothing else, just remember those three things. To seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. Now for me, I like lists. I don't know about you, but I enjoy lists. If I don't have a list when I go to the grocery store, believe it or not, I will come home without most of the things that I should have bought, but with a whole lot of other stuff that I really like. Or if I'll go there when I'm hungry, I'll come home with a bunch of food that makes nonsense, but I love it. So when it comes to gift buying, I love lists. And Tiffany will tell you, if she doesn't give me something, and literally you've got to hit me in the face with it, because my head is full of a bunch of useless knowledge that... 
You have to just tell me or write it down or just go, John, this is what I want. If you don't, you're, it's up for grabs. And now it's even worse because now I have a 16-year-old. But fortunately, she likes making lists too, and she filled up my Amazon last year. So <laughs> I need lists. And so that's why I enjoyed this uh, paragraph or this verse from Micah because it says it right there. What does God require of you? Boom, boom, boom. And so that's the three requirements that we're going to talk about today. God's list of how do we express love? How do we show people what God has done in our lives? And so requirement number one is to act justly. Isaiah 42.1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, Let's talk about that word justice. A lot of us have different views of it. Justice means fulfilling mutual obligations in a manner consistent with God's moral law, at least in what we're talking about today. Some of us may have in mind all the movies where the protagonist, something happens to them, and then they get revenge. See, we switch in and out justice and revenge a lot. We think, oh, they did me wrong, so as long as I get them back, we're good. That's justice. That's not what Mike is talking about here. That's not what God requires of us. You see, Jesus is the only hope for a truly just world. And he will bring not only individual spiritual forgiveness and health, but also the establishment of perfect justice throughout all earthly governments. In Titus, Paul writes this, God's readiness to give and forgive is now public. Salvation's available for everyone. We're being shown how to turn our backs on a godless, indulgent life and how to take on a God-filled, God-honoring life. And this new life is starting right now. See, at the point where we come face-to-face with God, we realize that life that we're living isn't what He wants. It isn't that best life. He welcomes us into the family. He forgives us of our past, and he sets us on a new path. He provides justice for us. Yet some of the items on his list go against the general culture or standards of our world. See, we're taught, or at least we're shown, that in order to, if something's done wrong to us, we do wrong back. Jesus says, no, you're to turn the other cheek. We have enemies. We have people we don't like. So our natural tendency is to not like them, to speak ill against them, to hate them. Yet Jesus says, no, 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 love them. But not only love them, pray for them, wish well for them. A prime example of this idea of Jesus' justice Seeking that out to help others. It's found in John chapter 7. It's a passage that most of us have at least heard of. If you know of anything of it, it's about throwing rocks. But in this passage, a group of an unruly mob, we'll call them that, has brought forth this young woman, caught in adultery. She's done wrong. And I want us to note that it's just her brought forth. And if you know anything about adultery, it usually takes at least two to tango. And only her is brought forth. But these people are screaming for justice. 
because the law back then states that if you commit adultery, we get to pelt you with rocks until you die. And so they're bringing her forth to Jesus. Not only are they trying to seek justice against her, but they're trying to catch Jesus in this because this goes against what Jesus is preaching. This idea that you are forgiven if you follow after me. If you seek after me, I will forgive you. And so they bring him forth, or bring this young woman forth, throw her on the ground, and are screaming, Jesus, it's time. Judge her. It's like they're expecting Jesus to be like Judge Judy. Bang that gavel, yell at her a little bit, and then sentence her. But what does Jesus do? He gets down on the ground. And there's significance to this. He's not just doing this because of, oh, I'm tired and I want to get on the ground. He gets down on his knees and he starts writing in the sand. And we don't know what he's writing. We have no idea. He could be playing tic-tac-toe. He could be writing himself a memo, grocery list, whatever. He is on the ground writing. And these people are screaming, screaming. They're probably like the irate ballistic man who just had $350 suit ruined by Thousand Island dressing. And so finally, Jesus slips up from the ground. And he goes, okay, I'm ready to cast my judgment. I'm done writing. He says, all right, you who has never sinned, you perfect people here that have brought forth this woman, as long as you have not sinned, you can pick up that rock and you throw right away. And so the people are just kind of like, and then Jesus goes back to the ground and starts writing again. And so one by one, these people just start leaving because Jesus has taught them in their own sin. He's just informed them, yeah, you can judge as long as you have not sinned. And so one by one, they all leave. And finally, we are left with just the woman and the only person who had the authority to cast that first stone. And the woman is just in shock, afraid, has no idea what has just happened. And so Jesus looks up from the ground and comes face to face with this woman. And I wanted us to remind ourselves why he was on the ground. And I don't believe it was to draw on the sand, but it was to be face to face with this woman. Because a lot of times when we like to cast judgment, when we like to seek justice against other people, we like to put down. We like to look down on people because they've done something. I just I haven't been caught in mine. And it's not just figure, literally looking down, but figuratively, we put people down. But yet, the ultimate authority, the king of kings, is down on his hands and knees, face to face with this woman. And he asked her two simple questions. Where have your accusers gone? And has no one condemned you? And this woman is sitting there face to face. And we all come to this moment with Jesus, this face to face experience. We will all face that where we stand before our Savior. And she says, no one, sir. No one is, I mean, I'm sure I would be lost for words, but she's no one. They're gone. And Jesus responds to her and says, neither do I. Neither do I. The only person that could have chucked that stone at her And this is Jesus, so I'm assuming he's got a good right fast arm. I mean, probably over 100 miles an hour. The only person qualified to throw that stone at her said, I do not judge you. I love you, 
you are forgiven. But from this point forward, don't do it anymore. See, Jesus has set her on a new path. He has given her godly justice, not earthly justice, where people wanted to condemn her and kill her, cast her out. Jesus says, I forgive you. I love you. Now from this point on, seek after me. No more of this. He forgave her and showed her his everlasting love and mercy. You see, that's Jesus' speciality right there. That's his justice giving out. He is able to take wasted, ruined lives that the world sees as unsavable, as outcasts, and he saves them by his grace. And then he restores them with his love and mercy. The problem was with these people, and most of them claimed to follow after God. They went to church on Sundays. When these people had the opportunity to show love, they chose to show judgment. See, worship without walls begins when we act justly, when we live by God's standards, not our own. And like I said, I told you I struggled with this this week because at my job I had a hard time not wanting to judge people and cast them out for their stupid financial decisions. I struggled with this this week. But despite the circumstances, what has just happened, Jesus had these people screaming at him. He canceled it all out, and he just focused on the woman. See, when we're going through our chaos, when we're feeling that, Jesus is focused on us. And so let us not be the people in the crowd screaming crucify. Not be the people in the crowd screaming condemn, judge. We're called to show love and mercy. To show God's justice, not our own. Requirement number two, to love mercy. Love others with God's heart. God's cry for action continues all throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament. It is that theme that just goes through, flows through Scripture, is His love for us. And to love mercy, it's an interesting item. The word love refers to that loyal love of a married couple, that agape love. The word mercy refers to God's love to those in His family. So to love mercy is to love others with God's heart. In Hosea 6, 6, God, the Hosea writes this, I want your constant love. I don't want your animal sacrifices. I would rather have my people know me than burn offerings to me. Once again, going completely against the cultural just customs there, kings would want you to come forth and give me gifts. Give me things. Show me love. It's very much, there's a book out there called The Cat and Dog Theology. The cat says, come, worship me. Respect me. Bring me things. Whereas the dog theology is, let me love you. Let me worship you. And it goes completely against the culture of that time where he says, I don't want your stuff. I don't want your sacrifices. I want you. I want your heart. Writer John Orberg tells a story about a young man. His name was John Gilbert, who lived in California. And when he was five years old, he was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy. He was told it would eventually destroy every muscle in his body. 
And finally, giving him about 10 years to live, it would take his life. Now, John Gilbert passed away at the age of 25. But while alive, John experienced a lot of exclusion and cruelty from his peers growing up. Kids can be cruel sometimes. So can parents, so can people. We get into a mode or a mood, and we can be very cruel. But at one point in John's life, he was named the representative for everyone with his condition in the state of California. Kind of a big deal. He was flown to Sacramento, and he got to have a private meeting with the governor along with his mother. And then that night was invited as a special guest to a fundraising event put on by the NFL. And so John was able to go and meet all these awesome NFL players, and they would show him his Super Bowl or their Super Bowl rings, which fit around his wrist. I mean, it was just, it was every kid's dream. He was living it out, having a great time. They were celebrating him. But that night, there was an auction to, like I said, it was a fundraiser. And one thing got John's attention very quickly. There was happened to be a basketball signed by the Sacramento Kings. And I'm assuming when this story was written, that's when they were good. <laughs> and so they were having an auction. And you raise your hand when you want to place a bid. And John's hand was raising every time to place a bid. And his mother couldn't stop his hand from going up. John, in his own words, wrote, Astronauts never felt as many G's as my wrist did that night. He wanted that basketball. Now, of course, with John automatically raising the bidding without realizing that was money that he was offering up that he didn't have, the bidding rose to an astounding amount for an item that was not even the big ticket item. And eventually one man named a figure that shocked the room completely. There's just no one was outbidding him for a basketball signed by the Sacramento Kings. So the man went up there and he claimed his prize. It was his. He bought it. It was for him, right? But instead of going back to his seat, he walked over to little John and he placed it in his hands. The man placed the ball in the hands that would never dribble it down the court, that would never have the opportunity to pass it to a teammate on a fast break, would never be able to pull up for winning three. But those hands would cherish it. And then John Orberg goes on to write and asks this question. Have you bought a basketball for anybody lately? This man didn't have to do this. And I'm assuming he spent a pretty large amount of money to do so. But he saw in this kid's eyes that joy. And he's like, this is something small. Which I'm assuming if you're spending down a lot of money, it might be a small amount to you, but large to everybody else. Something small I can do for him. And it doesn't just involve buying a basketball for anybody, but there are so many ways that we can love people outside of these walls. It's wonderful. I love Hydrogen Church because when you come in, you feel welcome. From the person waving at the highway with the Mickey Mouse hands to the people guiding you to your parking space. I mean, you have to be extremely talented to get in here without being noticed. You have to be a ninja. 
because we are that intent on it. That is part of connecting and filling and overflowing. We want you to be loved as you walk in here. And there's so many different ways that you can do that outside of just that stuff in our communities. James 1.22 says this, Don't fool yourself into thinking that you're a listener when you are anything but letting the word of God go in one ear and out the other. Act on what you hear. Those who hear and don't act are like those who glance in the mirror, walk away, and two minutes later have no idea who they are or what they look like. We talked about this last week. Pastor Josh was talking about being doers of the word. But what are we if we just come in here, hear a great sermon, and then go out and blow up some poor girl for making a simple mistake? We're called to love others, but how? How can we love others? And can I just tell you, there are so many opportunities just in our community alone where you can go and be a blessing to other people, where you can go love them. And there's plenty of things that our church does that you can be a part of. We do a Saturday morning uh, food pantry. Our teens last year, instead of doing a summer camp, went on a week-long missions trip just serving our community. We have wonderful organizations like the Pregnancy Health Center that are doing incredible things in this town. There are so many ways. Those are just a few. We can love people. For Tiffany and I, what we chose, what we felt called to do was foster care. Now, I don't know what really goes to parents' minds or, you know, Couples' minds when they go, oh, it's time for us to reproduce and have another child or have a child. Because I was a little bit scared to have children. Tiffany was gung ho; she was all for this, and I'm like, pump the brakes. Let's let's breathe a little bit. I'm like, sure, we've kept our dog alive for a year and a half, but those are much easier. <laughs> if we get upset with her, we can put her outside. I can't put the child outside. But we chose to do this. And the reason we chose it, we both felt called to it, is we read some statistics I'd like to share with you. More than 415,000 children are in limbo, waiting to see where their future will go. Of those, 108,000 are available for adoption and are waiting for a family to say yes to them. Yet for more than 22,000 kids, and this was back in 2013, that day never came, and they aged out of foster care as adults without a family of their own, without a support system, somebody to cheer them on or love them. And if that wasn't enough, 14% of children in foster care live in group homes instead of a foster family. And over 4,500 foster children are unaccounted for as runaways, unable to deal with life in foster care. And who knows where they're going through right now? They're on their own and are particularly vulnerable to things such as child trafficking and other just mind-boggling awful things. We felt called to this. Not everybody's called to foster care. 
We're not all called to do the same thing, but we're all called to do something. Because if you can read scripture and if you can attend church and hear these messages and go home and do nothing, then sleep in. (laughs) Because all you're doing is just wasting an hour of your day. Because if you have been impacted by the word of God, if it has truly touched you to where you have accepted him into your life and you're saying, God, I'm tired of that old life. I want this new life. I want what you want for me. I want your heart. Then you can't read over some of these things and go, I've got to do something. Over 100 times in scripture, it states to love the widow, the orphan, the poor, the weak, the outcast, the forgotten. Over 100 times it says that. So perhaps God's inspired word is trying to tell us something. Like I said, I'm a little dense, but, you know, that's pretty obvious. Over 100 times. Jesus says in Matthew 5, chapter 7, you're blessed when you care. Because at the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. We're not all called to do the same thing, but we're all called to do something. For Tiffany and I, it was foster care. And has it been easy? No. Has it been challenging at times? Yes. But most parents can say that. But has it been the most rewarding and incredible thing that we've done in our lives? Without a shadow of a doubt. We're not all called to do the same thing, but we're all called to do something. So I want you guys to think about what is it that God's calling you to do? Like I said, for us, it was foster care. For you, it may be helping with Habitat for Humanity. Maybe you're good at building things. For others, maybe it's just being hospitality, going somewhere and just loving on people. Giving them coffee or just speaking with them. Hold a door open for somebody. Let the other car go first. Phone a friend, not for your selfish desire, but perhaps because you might be the lifeline they need and that God provided a way. We're not all called to do the same thing, but we're all called to do something. We must be doers of the word. We must love mercy. Requirement three, to walk humbly with our God. To learn to follow constantly God's direction. In Micah chapter 6, we read this before. It says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before him? Shall I come with burnt offerings? Shall I bring calves that are only a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and tens of thousands of rivers of oil? What about my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. How many firstborn children are in here? How many of you enjoy that statement? No. Now, how many of you are not the firstborn child and go, whatever, doesn't hurt me? I would say no to that. I'm not a fan of that. See, the answer to that is no. That's not what God wants. It wouldn't do any good. It wouldn't pay the price. You see, only one could and only one did. He was a firstborn, by the way. 
the firstborn son of God, gave his life so that we could have life. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, it says, You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. See, when we reach the point where our only option is God, then we've reached the point where we can walk humbly with him. And Hydrant Church is full of stories of people who have hit that point where it's just been rock bottom. We hear that phrase a lot, rock bottom. And we hear those miraculous stories of turnaround where it's just like God came in and found us. And now I'm on a new direction. Now I'm on a new life. See, when we reach the point that we recognize God as the source of our success, then we have reached the point when we can walk humbly with him. And we walk humbly with God when we come to him in prayer. See, you're more in tune with God. I know this may come as a shock to some of you when, when you talk to him, when you're in his word, when you're in his, with his people worshiping him. You're in tune with God when you're actually communicating with him. Dustin talked about it during the prayer. We must be in communication with him. I don't know how many of you have prayed this prayer. Uh, this was me all this week. Dear Lord, so far today I'm doing all right. I've not gossiped, haven't lost my temper, been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, self-indulgent. I haven't whined or cursed, haven't eaten any chocolate. I've not charged anything on my credit card. However, I'm about to get out of bed. So if you could help me after that, I'm going to need a lot more of it. See, it's easy in the morning when you wake up and go, I haven't done anything yet. Good God. But that whole, when I get out of bed, please help me. There's a song by the Newsboys. They're an old Christian band. where it, <laughs> Showing my age. But there's a song where it talks about, before I get out of bed, before my feet can hit the ground, Lord, I give this day to you. Now, I don't know about you, I'm, I'm not a morning person. I like my coffee in the morning. I drink the coffee and then I do the stuff. And so the crucial part of that is the coffee in the morning. But for me this week, uh, like I said, I'm just being honest. This week has just not been great. Uh, I work at a credit union, and the first of the month is awful because that's when a lot of people, military, disability, Social Security, they get their paychecks. And they are lined up out the door at 8 o'clock. We open at 9. And then they're rude all day. So it's just a wonderful, real enriching environment to be in. Uh, between Thursday and Friday, I only got cursed out seven or eight times. Uh, just super fun. So as you can tell, it has been just easy to worship without walls this week. It's been difficult. But yet, we're still called to be humble. And I have found that in these moments and in these times when I am struggling with showing God's love is in the moments when I am not in his word. In the moments when I wake up and instead of going to him in prayer, I go, I don't want to get up. And I hit the snooze five times. See, time in prayer and time in God's word daily sets the focus of the day. 
Take such time to say, God, this is the day that you have made. It's your gift. Help me to use it wisely for your glory. Or, Lord, it's going to be a long, long day. I need your help and direction. To just take those first few moments in the morning, even before coffee, and to just say, Lord, this is your day. Before my feet hit the ground, give me the opportunities to seek justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. And God gives you those opportunities, and he humbles you. Uh, I was able to do an internship in the Philippines for three months between my junior and senior year in high school. And I know first my teenage daughter, she thinks I'm super old, but I can remember my high school years. I can remember trying to wear the cool clothes and have the cool flip phone because there were no smartphones then. I know that's hard to believe. But I can remember I felt called to ministry. I was like, I'm looking forward to this trip. But I had no idea what God was going to do on this trip and the amount of humbling I needed. Because I went from my normal complaints of, Mom, you bought the fake brand Pop-Tarts and not the real brand. (laughs) Or to, I had to buy the cheaper Nikes because these ones were a little bit more... Just your typical teenage person. And went over to the Philippines where 98% of the wealth is held within 0.5% of the population. And the population of just Metro Manila, where we were serving, was 5 million. I went to house churches that had three walls. Now, I know what you're saying. You're missing a wall. Yes, they were. Three walls and a partial ceiling where an entire family unit of anywhere between five to ten would sleep, eat, do everything. But yet, their focus was loving God. You see, they had heard this story of Jesus. They had been impacted by it. And they weren't just being hearers of the word, they were being doers of the word. And so if they could help people, they did. And I sat there and went, how many times did I complain that I stayed up too late on Saturday and didn't want to go out and do something? I came back with the humbleness of going, these people love God. And their love is there because maybe they had hit that rock bottom, but they had completely devoted their lives to that. That's what I wanted. It was a wake-up call for me to be humble in my attitude, to be humble in my selfishness, to get rid of it completely. See, when we're in the Word, God reveals these things to us. But how? How do we do these things? What should I do with my life? All of us have heard that question. You high school students, you will hear it as soon as you get ready to graduate. You will hate it profusely, especially if you don't know what you're going to do with your life. What should I do with my life? See, people search for meaning and for purpose and the answer to that ultimate question. Now, the prophet Micah is a kindred spirit to those pursuing that ultimate question. 
See, Micah's focus was to remind people of their purposes. See, for Micah, the answer to that ultimate question is found in the larger purposes of God. What does the Lord require of you? God's answer is to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. I want those words to echo with you as we close. Because there might be some of you that are adults in here and trying to figure out, what do I want to do with my life? What does God want from me? I said, we're not all called to do the same thing, but we're all called to do something. And so that is my challenge. My plea for you today is figure out, prayerfully ask God, what is it you want from me? How can I seek justice in my daily life? How can I love mercy with everyone that I encounter? And how can I walk humbly with you? Those three things. How can we incorporate that into our daily lives? And it's going to be different for each and every one of us. But as we talked about last week, don't just be hearers of this. Don't let this just go in one ear and out the other. Act upon what you hear. Because if God has touched you in any way, this is on your heart. It's at the forefront of your mind. It is in everything that you do. And will you be perfect at it? No. I just told you, I'm up here speaking about it and I screwed it up all week. And this is what I was preaching on. I need this daily reminder that even when I'm dealing with frustrations, even when I'm having those selfish moments, that despite my selfishness, despite my ugliness, despite my idiocy, idiocracy, God loves me. He sent his son to die for me. He wipes the slate clean and points me in the direction that I need to go. How can we seek justice? How can we love mercy? How can we walk more humbly with our God? Let us pray. Father, I'm I'm up here stepping on my own feet. I mean, you tell us in Scripture, you spoke through Micah, that what, is, what do you require of us? So, Father, I pray that as we go out back to our communities, our homes, our families, that, Lord, you would reveal more and more to us how we can see justice for you, for others, how we can love mercy, and how we can walk humbly with you. And, and Father, there might be times when it just flows and it's easy to do this. And there might be others where it's just like, Father, I need your help in this. But God, I pray that you would continue to build through us that we could, as a family unit together, work together to see justice served. Your justice, no one else's. That we could see your love shown. That we overflow on our communities. That, Father, we constantly are in your word, are in communication with you. That we walk each and every day more and more humbly with you. Father, thank you for your love. May we leave this place today and show it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
Thank you all for being here today. We're so glad that you joined us. I hope you have a great rest of your afternoon and as a special treat, a homemade cookie as you leave. Have a good day.